We live in an interesting time, don't we? we how often do we start like that? True though, isn't it? We live in an interesting time. I want you to just stop and think your earliest memory. If you think back, what was the world like when you were at your earliest memory? And then I want you just for uh, just half a second to think of some of the changes that have taken place over that period of time. It is remarkable, isn't it? Now, if if you're old then you'll see loads of change. But the amazing thing is that even if you are young, you will already see the world as having changed in quite remarkable ways. It's the world that we're in. It's flying at breakneck pace, isn't it? You think it's quick now? It is going to get so much quicker. Did you see the news in this past week? that they have now identified the theorized angel particle. Some of you see that? One. (laughs) There was one nod. Let me just tell you the implications, supposedly, of the angel particle. It is going to make computers that you have at home, your Mac or your PC, it is going to make computers that you have at home in, in... probably a relatively short time, 100 million times faster. Just, just, just settle, settle that in your mind. 100 million times faster. That means that everything can be gathered quicker. Information can be handled quicker. We can be doing all sorts of crazy, amazing things, scary things. The kind of of computing that a few years ago, I remember when we were doing some computing in work a few years ago, and you'd set the process running and leave it for a few hours. And a few hours later, you'd get the information. And now you do it in spreadsheets, and it takes... You know, have you ever had one of those really big spreadsheets that might take... You can actually see it pausing while it calculates... Forget it. We are not even on the same page in terms of change. But at the same time, there are aspects of our life connected with that which have increased in terms of challenge. We are to some extent connected with that changing world. Life gets faster. The challenges of living become more uh, acute. The, The challenges of... Information coming in on us, decisions that we have to make, information overload, that the angst that our younger generation are feeling when it comes to social media, all of that is where this technology out there is hitting our real life. But you know what I find really amazing is that those real life issues... They are there whether technology is there or not. Issues of life. Issues of challenge. Issues of difficulty. The fact that we are finding angst, emotional challenges, personal issues, relationship crises, they are the experience of humanity, whether it is in this age or ages past. With regards to that, we therefore very often ask the question, 
How do we fit God into this life? You know, when we ask that question, how do we fit God into this life, the reality is we are asking completely the wrong question. We should be asking, should be asking, and yet our human nature means that we find it almost impossible to do. We should be asking, as constant worshippers of God, how do we fit life into this experience? We should be the other way around. But you know, I know, that is not how we live, is it? But the, the perspective that the Bible wants to show to us is that we are made to be worshippers of God. We're made to be. Not sitting on a cloud playing a harp, but in reality, in gathered community, in activity, in work, in this world, worshipping God in all that we do, so that our whole life is consumed as being worshippers of God. We find that that is the way the world is described at the beginning of the Bible. At the end of the Bible, we find that that is how God's redeemed people are once again described as being, consumed with the worship of God. Therefore, when we gather in these moments where we are able to set aside some time and for that brief period of time focus on being worshippers, we have a tiny little glimpse of what it will be like when once again our lives can be consumed with that. Rather than consumed with all of the challenges and changes that are going on. That is, that is a breathtaking change, therefore, that has to go on in our lives, doesn't it? But it's also why these moments where we spend some time, pause, and just think and respond, and allow the idea of God to, to sink around us, to be immersed in that thought. It's why these periods of time are so significant. Tozer said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? What we think about God is the most important thing about us. You know, I think a load of us would say, oh, hang on a sec, there's way more important things. What the Bible is portraying is that God is just so vast, so huge, so significant, that our first thoughts towards God are the most important. They define us. Everything follows out from that. That's why we've been looking at this idea of worship, and we've been seeing that it is about all of us, our whole being, our heart, our impulses, our soul, our emotions, our mind, our logical thinking, and our strength, our action, our abilities. That, that, that is all of me. I can't be any more than those four elements. It's all of me. And so worshipping God is about 
all of those four. Now, we've already said, and Romans 12 makes it clear, that worship is about every day, and we've already talked about that even this afternoon. But when we gather together in this way, we are also saying that worship is about all of those four things. And so I want to come to this idea of what does it mean for us to be worshippers of God when we gather together. And I want to raise... right at the very beginning. I want to kind of sound a clarion call and say that when we gather together, God is at the center, not us. Now that sounds just so obvious that it almost goes without saying. But I hope as we spend a little bit of time in this particular section of the Bible, I hope that you'll see why it is so important and so significant and yet so hard for us truly to grasp. And so let's arrive, shall we, at Corinth. First century Corinth. Paul has established this church And then he writes to this church later on. We're going to look at some of the uh, text in a few minutes. But let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. It's a new church. It's a messy church. Not in all the best ways, messy. It's a messy church. It's clicky. It's celebrity-obsessed. It's immature. That's the church at Corinth. How do we know this? Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1 to 3, Paul says this, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. He's not saying you're not, I'm not addressing you as not believers. He's saying I'm addressing you as people, uh, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but are still worldly. You're still living like that. And you should be living a life which is shaped by the Spirit. You are mere infants in Christ. So they are believers then, aren't they? But they're infants. They're babies. Corinth is a play school of the Christian faith. It's not a university. It's a play school. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not. For since, let me just read that again. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? So he's saying, One of the definitions of the fact that you are an immature church, Corinth, is that there is jealousy and quarreling in your church. (laughs) Do you know what I love about the Bible? It's just so honest. It's just so honest. Because I think all of every church, every church leader should read that and say, oh man, we are still 
play school. We've still got that. We've still got jealousy. We've still got quarreling. It's not erupting everywhere. But it's the reality of our experience. Why? Because we're tending to live more like the way we are rather than the way we should be shaped by the Spirit. And so when we gather together in this way, and our worship is that communal worship, what we find is that we are living and we are shaped more in that world-minded sense of me at the center and less with God at the center. And I would say, wouldn't you, that when we use a description like Corinth being a new church, a messy church, a mixed church, a clicky church, a celebrity-obsessed church, uh, an immature church, all of those descriptions, I hope, I hope that we are mature enough as a church to be able to say we're still immature. (laughs) That sounds a bit backwards, doesn't it? But I hope we're mature enough to say that we're still immature. Because it's really important, isn't it, to be honest and say, this is what we are. So, so let's have a look at what does that mean, therefore, when we gather together. Let's have a look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12 and verse 12. We're firstly recognizing that we are a body. That's the starting point. We're a body. So when we gather together in this particular way, obviously... This is the strange part about the body of the church. We are a body in complete form. And yet in another way, we're only part of the body. Because the body is all of the church who are Jesus Christ's. This is that kind of mysterious way in which we can't really identify it. It's, it's not saying that we alone are the body, we're part of a bigger body. But let's just think about this body here for the time being. This body exists when we go out that door and disperse, it still exists. But there's something unique about the body when we come together in this way. And in fact, a lot of the book of 1 Corinthians is trying to deal with the issues of when that body comes together because the immaturity is seen when they come together. We are clicky if we were in Corinth. We are obsessed with money if we're in Corinth. We have status issues and hierarchy issues if we're in Corinth. And all of those things are true when we're dispersed but they're evident when we come together. The remarkable thing, and, I, and this, is, this is one of the challenges of our current experience, Corinth's clickiness would not have been experienced when they dispersed. The tendency of humanity to be clicky is experienced when we disperse in a world of social media. Because we can see what dispersed looks like in a way that we couldn't see before. It's a challenge, isn't it? 
We, we can see what's going on. Uh, and we can, our emotions can rise up. Our jealousy can rise up. Our, our, our grumbling and our moaning can rise up because we can see what we couldn't see before. It's a great challenge that we're facing. How do we be the body together when we're not together? Just as one body, just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form but one body, so it is with Christ. What he's saying is this the body has many parts. But when they're all together, joined together, they don't form just many parts together. They form a body. For we're all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And we're all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Here we are together. We're joined together. I look out, and we look around, and we see diversity. We see different perspectives. We see different ages. We see different experiences. And the beautiful thing about that is that together that forms a oneness, which is beautiful to God. Isn't that an amazing thing? Isn't it a beautiful thing to realize what we are part of as we gather together? Isn't it amazing to see what that means? What does it mean for us as we worship? Well, the first thing I want to say is that that is a supernatural oneness. And it abolishes, in a sense, individuality. Now, that's a strange thing. How can you abolish individuality and yet all be different parts? It's about us actually surrendering our individuality to the greater idea that we are one in God. It's about having God at the center. It's about us saying, yes, I'm, I am here and I am there and I've got that experience and, and, and all of that kind of thing. But God makes us one. You know, the ancient world, they had a much different idea to community than we have. They, they were a very kind of corporate kind of world, but at the same time, they were still stratified. They were still kind of in silos, separated out. We see it in the way that Paul says, you, you, whether you're Jews or Gentiles, whether you're slaves or free, you're all one. They thought differently. Oh, they would be, they would be really together as long as all the rich were together, or as long, as long as all the poor stuck together, or as long as all the slaves stuck together, or as long as all the Gentiles stuck together. There was that sense of oneness, but it, as long, it was with your group, it was with your tribe. Do you see how breathtakingly different the church was? It said, all of those things that currently separate you out into your little groups, forget it. You're one. You're one. Now, can you imagine how, how 
revolutionary that was. When the church says, this rich slave owner is suddenly one with those who he owns. For a Jew who has had the pride of being one of God's people all down through the years, and suddenly it says, do you know what? The floodgates are opened, and all of those, those heathen Gentiles out there can receive this same God. And suddenly there is a, a leveling of all of the differences that previously existed. The rich, the poor, the slaves, the Jews, the Gentiles. In the ancient world, men and women in their in their kind of really unstable differences. And the Bible is starting this process of the ongoing journey of bringing us to this level, what place of oneness. It's amazing what Paul is suggesting here. And so he describes it with a few descriptions, the way he describes it, he talks about eyes, and ears, verse 15 to 20. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it should not, for that reason, stop being part of the body, which stands to reason, doesn't it? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. It's about creating what is a definition of a body. The powerful group, let's say the eyes, E-Y-E-S, the eyes are the ones who think we're the important ones in, in figurative terms. So that, that defines what a body is. And therefore all the ears can't say, I'm no longer part of the body because the body's defined as being an eye. Why? Why not? Because Christ is the head. It's Christ that defines the body. Not whether we can see, not whether we can hear. All of those kind of variations and differences. They are secondary. They make up the, the completeness of the body. So let's have a look at how it works. It talks about eyes and ears. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Verse 17. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? The diversity, the difference, brings completeness. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Do you sometimes think, I've got, what do I bring? What have I got? I look at all of those other people in the church and, and I think, where am I? <laughs> Who am I? It's precisely that difference that makes us complete. It's the difference that makes us complete under Christ. It's not that we should all aim to be this kind of vanilla-shaped kind of super-Christian. It's the very difference that makes us complete. It's the diversity that brings completeness. 
Look at what verse 18 says. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. That diversity that we're talking about is an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's something which shouldn't cause us trouble. It should cause us comfort. But, according to that verse 18, it is not formed by us. (laughs) It's formed by God. Isn't that amazing? He has placed that diversity in the body. He has placed it. He's drawn that difference together. He's completed who we are. That difference is not formed by us. Because in human terms, we would never form a group like this. Why? Because we have so many individual different perspectives. But it is Jesus Christ that brings us together, that unites us. It's the Spirit of Jesus indwelling in us which brings in that completeness. And so, we have that idea that it is God-formed. Look at verse 22. On the contrary, talking now about that idea of weakness. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. Isn't that even more revolutionary? The bits that we think are weak, those bits that we think we can do without, are precisely the ones that we can't do without. That is back to front in human logic. It is God reversing our tendencies of honor. Let me put it like this. We might think that the ideal church is a church which doesn't have any mess in it, doesn't have any problems in it, doesn't have any awkward people, doesn't have any people who are frail and weak, doesn't have people who are struggling. The idea that if Jesus is your Lord, everything in life is great, uh, and therefore life isn't going to be difficult, life's not going to be hard. What this says is, when we have within our one body weakness, that is what we need. It's what we need. It's what we honor. It's what we value. That is so reversing of of the kind of mindset of, of us being well in this world. Our 21st century mindset of wellness is that we build ourselves up And we get a self-identity which is built up, which is secured. Now, all of those, there is great help in that, 
But we also know, and you know and I know, that there are many occasions where we cannot achieve that. And this says, when we can't achieve that, that very weakness is what we value. It's what defines us. And the great problems with the idea of worship in our 21st century is it's a place where we come and we all get really happy and we pretend that all is okay. (laughs) And it's great. And the reality is that there are many who are inside who are just falling apart. And it's not acknowledged. And Paul says, acknowledge it. Love it, value it, because it is that very weakness which is our glory, which is our honor. It's indispensable. And we treat with honor those very challenges. See how that kind of thinking about it in that particular kind of way changes our attitude towards each other. If God values us weak, frail, in that way, if God values us in that way, how should we value each other? We value each other in the same way that God values us, shouldn't we? For God values that weakness. He values, he values those who are kind of stumbling along this journey of faith, who are finding it tough, who are are weeping, who are crying, who are finding issues in life just battering them one after the other. They're in a situation, maybe relationally, which every day is just hard. And yet God says, that is what I value. That is what I honor. And therefore, our gathering together needs to be shaped with a mindset that values each other. So, so what does that look like? Can I just give a couple of thoughts? Engaging with each other, chatting to each other is really hard, isn't it? But, but there can be a tendency when we gather together to kind of feel safe by speaking to the people that we know. Speaking to the people who we don't feel embarrassed about talking to. And then that group gets a little bit bigger and that group gets a little bit bigger and a bit bigger and it becomes the kind of group that looks really happy and then somebody's on the outside of that group and it looks impenetrable. It looks like the group to be in. And the reality is that that group that looks like it's the group to be in, it's just filled with a whole load of normal people who are in that group because they feel really insecure talking to other people. (laughs) And they kind of feel, oh, I can't do that. And therefore, I'll stick in this group. And we look at that and we say, that's community. That's church. I've come to church, it's been great. And God is honoring, God is honoring and valuing the ones on the outside. (laughs) The ones who don't seem to be connected. So let me just 
say that that has two implications. The first implication is this. Our love for Christ is expressed by our love for each other. And therefore, breaking out of those kind of what might appear to be safe havens is precisely expressing our love to each other. But let me just look at it from the other side. Do not, do not define how good church is by whether you're in the group or not. Do not define church as being a bad experience because I turned up and nobody spoke to me and it was really bad because it's God at the center. I'm not saying that therefore we can all, you've just heard me say we need to be reaching out, but at the same time, we can so often define church, particularly with our talk of community, as though it's some belonging which is more important than worshipping God. That's nuts. Worshipping God is at the centre. And so if you come through the door and if you sit at the back and you gather together in this community and you worship God and you never say anything to anybody and you walk back out the door, you are part of that body. And you are gathered in that body of worship. And it is no less an experience of the worship of God. It is no less... And if you feel that you are struggling in that way, I plead with you, speak to us. I plead with you, look out of the groups that you are in and identify and speak to people who might be feeling what you're already feeling. It's just that you've got somebody that you're talking to. I plead with you that we do that. Because that is what Jesus meant when he said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. That's what it looks like, at least in part. And so when we might end up just appearing and feeling very insecure and not talking but partaking in the singing, being part of the prayer, worshipping God through His Word, emotionally engaged, heart engaged but completely by ourselves, let me encourage you with this. And it's a thread that goes right through the Bible. God looks at the heart. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Samuel's looking to anoint a king. Jesse's got all these great, strapping, handsome sons. And they've got a little scraggy son who looks after the sheep. And the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height for I have rejected him. That's talking about Saul. Looking at that kind of... He looks impressive. 
The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I love that. Because as we conclude, and we've been talking about worshipping with our heart, and our soul, and our mind, and our strength, I realise that all of us are deficient in at least some of those areas. But when I'm here, you're making up for me. You're making up for my deficiencies. I'm making up for your deficiencies. Because we are, we are drawn into the body to be complete. We are complete. And our hearts being here, our hearts moved towards Jesus, draws us into relationship. It's a beautiful picture, the body, isn't it? <laughs> the church, the body of Jesus Christ. Isn't it incredible that a dysfunctional group is formed together into a functioning body by a single functioning body which was broken? Isn't that amazing? The body that does work is formed by the body that was made not to work. The body of Jesus which was broken is the analogy which is used to make the body that is complete. Isn't that... Isn't that do you know what? I, I think we could just take that little thought and we could draw all sorts of ideas and thoughts and emotions and, and heart movement and soul emotion and mind thinking and actions just out of that thought that a body broken makes the body formed. And if we can cl conclude our worship of God on that note, then we're in a good place.